0: Thank you, Mike, and thank you all for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here tonight. As Mike said, I, I love God's Word, and I love any opportunity I get to share God's Word and a message from God's Word to His gathered people. So thank you for sharing this opportunity with me, and I'm glad that, that I accepted, because I have to be honest, when Mike first contacted me about this and said, hey, I'd like you to think about coming down to be a guest speaker my first thoughts were, man, how am I going to tell Mike no? Because, and I had some good reasons. Our summer, like I'm sure some of yours is, is just jam-packed. It's, it's been so busy this summer, and we were actively looking for ways to simplify, things that we could cut out to, to try to make more time for our family, and just the, the idea of adding one more thing, and um, it just didn't seem tenable, but... The other thing was, while I love sharing God's Word, the idea of, of having this, this, such a short amount of time to unload an entire book, I thought, boy, I don't know that I'm cut out for that. That's not really the style that I, that I work best in. I'm sure there are people much better equipped to do that, to do that than, than I would be. But the flip side of that is it's Mike. And how do you tell Mike no? Because i got to tell you, Mike and Jessica are two of my favorite people on this planet. I love them so very dearly. And as Mike said, I had the opportunity to get to know them uh, as, as a minister ministering to them because they were part of the, our young adult group when I uh, started working in that capacity. I had the opportunity to work alongside Mike as a, as a coworker and I came to know Mike in that time as a dedicated student of God's word, a loyal and true friend and most importantly a dedicated and passionate follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. And and Jessica is just absolutely amazing. She is, she is smart, and she is funny, and she's always challenging and pushing others around her to, to challenge themselves and to be better, and the two of them as a couple, as they, as they grow together, it's just an inspiration to me, and I want you to know how very lucky you are to have them, because if I could steal them back, and I would in a heartbeat and not think twice about it, but I am glad that they have the opportunity to raise a family in their home state, near to their roots and, and near to family, and that's a blessing to them. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that for them. Mike kind of told you basically what you need to know about me. Uh, I married my college sweetheart. We met just down the road a little ways at Oklahoma Christian University uh, about 20 years ago. For the last 17 years, after graduating, we got married and moved to Columbia, Missouri, where we've worked in different different opportunities and and spent some time there. But the last about seven years or so, I've been working in a growing vocational role with our church, first as just a part-time minister working with young adult ministry, which is something I'm extraordinarily passionate about. But it's grown to include education programs and tech stuff, and now I preach 20 weeks out of the year, and I don't even really have a good title. It is not a good way to put your thumb on what I do. And I love that. I love that about my job. I love the oddness of it. I love embracing the messiness of doing all of those different things. And it's just a part of, I think, what really excites me and gets me going about about working in, in ministry in that capacity. And ultimately, that's what hooked me into coming here. Because when Mike shared the idea that, look, what we're asking people to do is tell the whole point of one book of the Bible in one evening. But then everyone does a different one, and over the course of a collected number of weeks, that all adds up, and we have the whole Bible covered. I thought, wow, that's odd. But I love that. It's, It's such a cool idea to kind of get this diversity of thought and different viewpoints and different styles and put them all together in kind of a running, ongoing commentary of presentations on God's holy word. And I am so thrilled to be able to be a part of that. As I looked through the books of the Bible that were available, there were several that spoke directly to some passions that I have, but after weighing some options, kind of finding the sweet spot of something not too long and not too short, not too hard, but not too easy, I settled on Amos. And Amos is one of the absolute coolest books in all of God's holy scriptures, in my opinion. Yet I believe it is one of the most underappreciated books in God's Scripture. Because Amos, it falls into a collection of books that we call the minor prophets. And Amos is not only, I think, underutilized in modern day Christianity, but all too often I believe it's misunderstood a little bit. And so before I, I want to really dive into Amos and talking about its major theme, I think it's important that we kind of appreciate the purpose of of the book a little bit. And to do that, we have to have a common approach to Amos. And to understand and have a common approach to Amos, I think it's helpful if we have kind of an understanding of the minor prophets. And so for me to tell you where I'm coming from with my view of the minor prophets in general as sacred writing. And I think the term itself, minor prophets, Gives them kind of, does them a disservice. I don't think it's the best choice of terms, but I wasn't asked my opinion when it, that label was, was created. Because they're only minor in comparison to their major counterparts in word count. The amount of words they use. But outside of that, there's nothing minor about the importance of the messages in the minor prophets. There's nothing minor about what they have to say about who God is. And so I wish we could call them the concise prophets. Because they cram a lot of material into a concise number of words. But they're called the minor prophets. And so that's what what we have to work with. But to understand the minor prophets as sacred literature, I want to start with this distinction. I think we have to think about them in two different ways. Thinking about them as spoken oracles of God's Word, verbally given at a point in time, and as sacred literature that is written and recorded. And those are two separate purposes, and you'll see what I mean in just a second, but I think it's most clearly, it's most clearly illustrated by thinking about these two questions. The first is, why was the message given? That speaks, that speaks to prophecy as spoken word oracle, a spoken oracle of God. Why was the message given? Is kind of the key question there. The second question is, why then was that message written down, recorded, kept, and treasured by people of faith for countless generations? It's a different question. It gets at a different way of thinking about the value of the minor prophets. When we think about spoken oracles, why was the message given? We see that there are specific messages given to a specific people in a specific time for a very specific Purpose. It's kind of like reading somebody else's mail. You open the envelope and you read through someone else's mail, and you can get a little bit of information about about the people involved and what's going on, but you don't have the full context because it wasn't written to you. And sometimes, when we look at these spoken oracles, we have to realize we're kind of reading someone else's mail, and we kind of see that intuitively. We have to use some wisdom and discernment when unpackaging. The details of the minor prophets. I'll use Jonah, for example, simply because it's a story that I think most people in churches are familiar with. I don't have to set up any backstory. You know the story of Jonah. The specific message was simple. It was delivered to the Ninevites. Because of your wickedness, in three days you'll be destroyed. Specific message to a specific people. Now, if we read that message and we think that's a general message and what do we take out of that... We have to be discerning about that, right? We can't take from that and say, well, God must work on a three-day timetable. So from the point that I'm convicted of a sin or I'm, I'm, uh, someone points out an error that I've made, the, the clock's ticking. I have three days now to repent of this because God works on a three-day timetable. Learned that from the prophecy of Jonah. But yet we know from other writings that's, that's, not, that's not true. That was a specific, that was a specific case. And so what we then do is we as we unpack prophecy, we then try to take these specific messages and make general application out of those. And I think that's a great that's a great way to look at the minor prophets. And we can get a lot of great, great general tools and, and general teachings out of the minor prophets. But we have to be discerning about how we do that and, and looking at it in the context of other scripture, in the context of history. And I find that when dealing with the minor prophets, that's the vast majority of what you find being taught and written about out of the minor prophets are these general applicable pieces from these specific messages. And I think that's great, but for me, there is a richness and a value that goes so much farther than that. If, if we're willing to look at it. If we're willing to think about a different question, that second question. Not about the specificity of the message as it was given at a historical point, but why then was it recorded, kept, treasured, and ultimately guided by the Holy Spirit to be canonized as part of our Bibles today? Thinking through that, what's the value then of that? Is it merely there to confirm some historical context, to kind of satiate our historical curiosity about these pockets of time? Are they only books of the Bible there to provide brief snapshots and glimpses at the lives of people of faith so that we can infer these general ideas about what we are to do that are confirmed other places in Scripture? No, I believe there's so much more there. I believe there's a more important message to the prophets. And one of the reasons we get distracted by it is we think about prophecy so often and we immediately think about future-telling, that the prophecy is foretelling of the future that's destined to be. And I think sometimes we, we get that idea because when we think of prophets, so often when we speak about prophets, we go to the great prophets. We talk about Moses, and we talk about Elijah, and we talk about Joseph. People with the power to part seas and call down fires from heaven and interpret the dreams of kings. And we associate prophecy with signs and wonders, and true, that occurred in some instances. The prophets had a miraculous ability, a miraculous sign or a wonder that confirmed that message. But in many other cases, especially more often than not in the minor prophets, that's not there. They're simply messages delivered. It's a prophetic message not a a miraculous foretelling of something way off in the future. It's a message from God to someone else. God lays a message on someone's heart, and they, as a servant, deliver that message in faith. And as I think then about the importance of why would we record these messages, the value so much more than just the historical record of isolated bits and pieces, because we have lots of other Scripture that tells us historical record. It's much more complete than that. It's more than just displaying God's power with signs and wonders because other places do that better and the minor prophets don't even try. There's something else at work and for me, I believe the deeper message of the prophecy can be found not by looking at the players involved in the message delivery, but the author. Looking solely at the author of the message and trying to learn what does this message say about who God is. Not who is God talking to, not who is the prophet, what's this person trying to say, what's the context, how is the message received, but who is God revealing himself to be in giving this message. As you look back at how prophecy was treated in ancient times, that was the value. It was so, these writings were so treasured in ancient times as, as writings that revealed who, something about God's character in a profound way. And and what we see are these personal glimpses into who God is because He presents Himself in a personalized, personified way. We see God communicating to people that He loves. And so often, people that have hurt Him, that have grieved Him. And in many cases, people that that grief, it's, it's led to God's anger but we still see that personal connection of God. We see his personality and we see a glimpse and a window into his very heart and how he talks about himself and his relationship with his people. And so for tonight, when we dive into Amos, I want us to be thinking about that question. What do the pages of Amos have to say about who God is? What is it about who God is that's on display in the writings of Amos? Amos. And so let's look at two things. I want us to think about about the construction of this message and then its content. We'll start with the construction of this message. The construction of of the book of Amos, when you look at it from an ancient perspective, is designed for one purpose, really, and one purpose only. It's constructed in a way to be offensive to its hearers. It's extraordinarily offensive. Amos, this message is delivered to the northern kingdom of Israel in sometime around the middle 700s B.C. Before the fall of the kingdom, but it's coming. God has had it. God is, is fed up with Israel. And we see in chapter 1 the words of Amos, who is among the <laughs> which he saw concerning Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah, and the days of King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And the Lord says, the Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds wither and the tops of Carmel dries up. And then he begins this prophetic message that Amos delivers. Right off the bat, two strikes of offence that happened. This is delivered to the northern kingdom of Israel, yet the deliverer is Amos, a simple farmer from Judea. He's of the wrong profession and he's from the wrong country. Right? Israel and Judah, they're 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 relatives, but they don't get along. They're very estranged. From Judah's perspective, Israel walked away from God. They abandoned God's plan. They ceased being chosen people. They are the ones that divided the kingdom. It's their fault. From Israel's perspective, Judah are the stuck-up, snotty siblings that think they've got it all figured out and have got it all right, and they're harboring all of God's goodness in the temple for themselves and they don't see their own problems, their own faults, and it's it's their fault for pushing them away. They're very at odds, and God sends a message through a man from Judah. He's from the wrong place. But if God God if you're going to I can imagine them saying, "God, if you're going to send us someone from that country to the south, surely you could have sent someone with some prophetic credentials, someone we can believe in. You sent us a farmer." You, you, you sent us a shepherd, and we learn later he also, he also tends fig trees, so he's not a simple farmer. He's got two farming jobs. He's the wrong profession from the wrong country coming up here to deliver this message. And then he lays in to his message. He says these words, for three sins of Damascus, yes, even for four, I, the Lord, will not relent from my punishment. Now, to us, that sounds bizarre. Well, make up your mind, Amos, is it three sins or four? Which, which is it? And something we miss out on, numbers in the ancient world are important. They carry a lot of symbolic weight in the ancient world. Writers and orators would use numbers and the symbolism of numbers the way we would use rhyming and alliteration to make a literary impact. With our words today, numbers are important. So he's doing a couple of things here. He's, he's tipping his cap. He's saying, start counting. This is a numbers game. Also, you see this with different numbers in different ancient writings, but this idea, sometimes you'll see it for, for seven and for eight, or for three and for four. It's describing, this is not. this is not a specific instance. This is a growing lifestyle. And we see that because Amos doesn't list three or four sins. He lists one. He really only lists one sin that he talks about. And then he issues a pronouncement of judgment. Now, we're going to kind of gloss over these really quickly because we don't have a lot of time to dig into all of them. And it's not really where the importance of Amos is. But I want you to see how God's setting this up because the structure is is really important. For three sins and for four of Damascus. And he describes that they have destroyed their enemies. They've gone to enemy territory and they've destroyed them. In a way, it's described, you can read about it in chapter 1 on your own if you want to study this, but it's described in a very gruesome way. They've annihil- they haven't just defeated their enemies, they've annihilated them. And some commentators think the language points to torture. They, they captured and tortured people along their way, because it wasn't enough just to have conquest, they had to make people suffer. And we would say, well, well yeah, God's not going to stand for that forever. That goes against who God is. Torture is not something God's going to smile upon, and Damascus is going to be destroyed. We we see that prophetic message. And then he continues, For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I, the Lord, will not relent upon it. Well, what what has nation two done? They have participated, in short, in slave trade. They've taken their enemies and they've sold them to foreign countries. They're participating in the slave trade for 3 sins and for 4 of tire I the Lord will not relent from punishment what have they done more slave trade but it's worse than that because they've sold they've they've forsaken the bonds of kindred and sold them away they have they have they've abandoned their allies they've mistreated them they've they've betrayed their allies and sold them into slavery for gain He continues circling the map, but now he's getting a little bit closer to home. For three sins and for four of Edom, I, the Lord, will not relent punishment. What has Edom done? They've betrayed Israel, God's people, and they've been a constant thorn in Israel's side. Nation five, Ammon. And not knowing this this group very well and who's in here, I'm not going to say specifically what Ammon did, but you can read it. It's disgusting. And we could only sum it up as war crimes of the most heinous nature. Murderous, vile war crimes against the innocent. Nation six, for three sins of, of Moab and for four. What, what has Moab done? More war crimes. They've desecrated the graves of enemy kings. They've burned the bones of kings to ash and they've stirred up their graves abominations, evil things that they have done. And everybody's waiting for the the last piece of this puzzle to fall into place because they all know we've been counting up and we're at six. Six symbolizes incompleteness, whereas seven is the divine number of completeness. It is the finished, the culmination of all things. So there has to be one more, and it's the climax the sins have built, the nations have gotten closer and closer. Who's it going to be? And then Amos says these words, for three sins of Judah and for four. And to use a sports term, the crowd goes wild. This is what they wanted to hear. This is perfect. Amos has gone from discredible, uncredible to Hero. He's he's cast judgment upon every enemy they they have, and the culmination, the climax of this prophecy is Judah, those stuck-up folks to the south who think they have it all right, and what have they done? They've rejected God's laws. And there it is. Confirmation. They were right all along. In this argument, this divided kingdom that had gone on for so long, Israel gets confirmed they were right. The culmination, the completeness of this beautiful seven-point sermon ends with Judah being the ones that God's wrath falls on. And Amos has got to be everyone's favorite prophet at this point. In fact, now the fact that he's a Judean makes him, it's even better. Because any Israelite from Israel would come up with with a prophecy against Judah. But, But God's so serious, he picked someone from Judah and brought him up to complain against Judah. And while they're all reveling, they're all overjoyed with this, the unthinkable happens. Amos breaks the rules. He quiets the crowd and he says, for three sins, and I have to imagine after the gasps, you could have heard a pin drop. This is breaking all the rules. This is going against all convention and all protocol. Who in their right mind would have an eighth point? This was the perfect prophetic message in our terms it's the perfect three-point sermon and now amos has stayed way too long he's gone way too far this this is either amos ruining everything or he has something so important to say that the most perfect sermon could only be the introduction for it and they can't wait to hear what happens until he says it for three sins of israel and for four and they have to be infuriated. They have to be offended. He's not only broken convention, he's not only broken the rules of what's, what's normal and acceptable, but now he's set them up and pulled the rug right out from under him. He's used this entire thing to set them up and say, Yeah, you guys are cheering on how bad these are, and you're worse. You're worse. And he completes that because then he lists four sins. Now the theme becomes complete. Now there are finally four sins listed. What Amos does is a prophetic slap across the face to these people in the most abrasive way possible. And he has spent about two chapters setting it up and he spends the entire rest of his message unloading on Israel. So what four sins could possibly be so bad that it took this To wake them up. To be the setup to get their attention. To be worse than than murder and war crimes and slave trade and abominable things. And we see that unfold in chapter 2 if you want to look along. They have sold the righteous for a piece of silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. What he's describing is injustice in the courts. The righteous, those who, res- who deserve to be acquitted, are guilty because there's financial gain to be had. The, if, there's, if there's something to be made financially, even if it's just the price of a pair of sandals and it's a needy person in the way, that's an acceptable loss. There's nothing, there's not a problem there. We are willing to accept that. Number two, they trample the poor into the dust and they push the afflicted out of the way. They see the poverty. They see the affliction and the injustice and no one's bothered by it. No one's conscience is pricked by it. They just move them out of the way to get on to their next business appointment. No one's concerned about it whatsoever. There's sexual immorality described but not just any sexual immorality, but it's a, it's a sexual practice consistent with pagan worship. And it's the sin that I would describe to us today as it's the sin of God and. Because Israel continued to worship God. As, as you see later in Amos, they're doing it pretty, pretty correctly. To the best of their ability, away from the temple. They're worshiping God. They're offering sacrifices that God asked for. They're doing a lot of the right things. But when it's convenient to sidestep that, it's more pleasurable to do something else. They're going to add that on as well. It's the sin of God and. I've got God. I'm still doing it, but you know I can't let go of this because it's too enjoyable, it's too profitable, it's it's too good for me to let go of God and, and that's what they're doing. Finally, he describes unjust fines. There's a whole segment of the country of the population living lavishly off of the backs of someone else who is poor and mistreated. And we may be thinking the same thing that Israel was very likely thinking those in, in hearing of Amos' words. Wait, wait, wait a minute. So what you're trying to say, Amos, is they're greedy. All of that setup, up, all of this comparing to, to brutal murders, torture, slave trade, and you're saying this is worse? You're saying all that was an appropriate setup to say, hey guys, you're a, little, you're a little greedy. Knock it off? That's what has you so upset? Aren't you misreading God's intent just a little bit here, Amos? It's going a little too far. But Amos develops this point. He, he unloads on them. And we don't have time to read it all in one short evening, but Amos, Amos is short enough. You can read it in one setting, and it's, it's a fascinating read. I'd encourage you to do that. But he unloads on the nation of Israel for their greed, their neglect of social justice and issues of caring for others, their desire for more and more and more, no matter who is in the way or who is trampled on their way to more. And who is mistreated and treated poorly in the process. But there are a few points that I want to bring out because I think they they provide some really interesting insights into who God is, what's important to Him, and how He thinks about these things by how He writes about them, and they're interesting for us today. So if you want to look at chapter 4, chapter 4, it begins with a very colorful yet unflattering metaphor He says to a segment of the population, hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on Mount Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring something to drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness the time is surely coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And he goes on to describe basically them being drugged into exile which is coming for them. Now a lot of things have changed in 2,700 or so years, but one thing that I'm guessing hasn't: not many women want to be called cows of Bashan or any place else. But that's what Amos call, calls them. That's what the message of God is given to them. You're so lazy. You set back and you say, Bring more. Give me more. And you have this, this picture of these wealthy estate owners setting back to their husbands or their managers of their estates or the people who work for them. And they're looking around at the other wealthy saying, Hold on, I got to keep up. I don't care what it takes. Bring me more. I don't care who you have to mistreat. Bring me more. I don't care who's upset. Bring me more selfish, self-focused greed that he describes. And there is no excuse here. Amos leaves no, no opportunity to argue, to say, well, wait, 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 Amos, we're not the ones out there mistreating. I didn't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just sitting back here, you know, eating my grapes and my figs and living the life. I, I didn't know all of the workers were being mistreated. That's not my fault. I'm not the one out there doing that. I have people doing that for me. The fact that they're not involved directly does not remove their guilt. They're just as guilty. In fact, even more so. And Amos calls them to task, and the Lord, through Amos, calls them to task and says, the fact that your hands look clean doesn't make you clean. The fact that you're sitting back in luxury and not caring about what's being done on your behalf, that matters. It affects God deeply. And I think that's an important message for us to think about today because in our society and the economies that we live in, it is so easy to set back and consume and not ever even think about who's on the other end. So removed, so remote. But God cares about who's on the other end of our consumption. I'm not saying we have to abandon all, all possessions and all economy because we don't know what might be out there, but we have, to, we have to be concerned about it because God is concerned about it. God cares who's on the other end of our consumption. And so we shouldn't glibly and lazily turn a blind eye and not care and say, you know, that's not me. I'm not the one one dealing with that. I'm just living my life. As long as I keep getting enough, as long as I keep getting more and I'm living the life that I feel I deserve, I don't need to worry. Don't bother me about who's on the other end. That's not my problem. But God, God calls the Israelites to task over that in a very very real way. There are a few others that I probably don't have time to dig into tonight, but i got to make sure and get chapter 5 because that's the culmination, I think, of this book. It's where God drives it all home. I believe in chapter 5 with, if I'm being quite honest with you, church, with words that at times keep me awake at night. Words that haunt me. Because they are so troubling and we see God laid bare in a very real way. God says these words in verse 21. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'll not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What is so telling to me What is revealed here about who God is and what God thinks is important haunts me at times. Because the words God uses to describe their worship are all the right words. It's the right kind of sacrifice. The right kind of offerings. And God says, I despise it can't look at it one more minute. Because you've broken my heart. You've broken my heart by ignoring what is so very important to me. And all of the worship in the world is sickening to me. No matter how you do it or how often, it sickens me. All of the right things in the world done cannot atone for injustice and mistreatment of people who God loves. And when I think of that, I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 15. He's once again confronted by the Pharisees about doing things the wrong way. He doesn't look the part. His disciples don't do things the way that they think they ought to do them. They say, you're doing things the wrong way, Jesus. Your followers are doing things the wrong way. Get into line. And he turns the tables on them the same way that Amos does. He confronts their hypocrisy and the injustice that they are allowing to go on, the mistreatment of, in this case, the elderly in their society by saying to people of means, you know what, I know you're supposed to honor your father and mother, but you know what, we'll make a loophole for that. It's okay. you got a loophole. God's not going to mind that you ignore your parents in their old age because you've given to the temple and you've given to us, and that's a loophole, it'll be okay. And Jesus calls them to task in much the same way Amos does. He confronts their flaunting of justice for their own greed. And they're justifying it with their religion and looking the other way. The people who are in power who should be seeing injustice and making it right are looking the other way because they're getting kickbacks. And Jesus calls the Pharisees to task over that. And He goes on and He teaches them about the nature of defilement. They're so worried about who's washing their hands with what water and what food they're touching. All the while allowing this to go on, and Jesus says, you've missed the point. What goes into your mouth can never defile you. That was never never the point. You're looking at all the wrong places. It's It's what comes out of your mouth. It's what you do. It's what you say. It's what you stand for. That's what matters. And you're so busy looking at all of the stuff that doesn't matter. You can't see what's right in front of you. The injustice that you're turning a blind eye to. The elderly people in your communities. Hungry. Alone. Mistreated. Underrepresented. You can't even see that because you're looking at all the wrong places. I believe what we see here in Amos is God laying his heart bare. And it's echoed with the words of Jesus In Matthew 15, the two are so consistent where we see the heart of God put very simply, as simply as I can put it, God cares so very deeply about how we treat people. God cares so very deeply about how we treat people. And it's not just the people in our circle, but it's the people outside the periphery of our circle. God cares, and He expects more of His people. He expects more than us to just turn a blind eye and to say, it's not my problem, I didn't cause it. He expects more than us to just turn a blind eye and say, you know what, I'm just one person, what am I going to do? He expects more than us to say, you know what, I know that's probably not the best thing, but man, I can't really afford to do anything about it. I've got things I've got to think about weighing on my mind. And the challenge for us, and the part of that that I, I said keeps me awake at night, that we're part of these words of Amos that haunt me, is that God lays bare that he cares so much more about that than how we do church. No amount of religion, no amount of being right matters at all to God if we go out these doors and we mistreat people and we turn a blind eye to the poor and we close our ears to the cries of the needy and the oppressed. If we walk out these doors, what we did in here doesn't matter a hill of beans to God if we go out those doors and we don't love people the way He wants us to love people, the way that He loves people. We may look on the surface to be top shelf Christians. We may attend a church that's a shining example of religion and piety in the community, but guess what? If we aren't loving people, God looks at that and says, "So what?" If if all of the stuff that we do in these church buildings doesn't impact who we are and what we do outside of it, it doesn't matter. The point of what we do in here isn't to placate God so we can go do whatever we want. The point of what we do in here is to change who we are, to make us more in the image of Jesus Christ when we go out these doors to loving people. It doesn't matter if we don't protect those who protect themselves. This is all empty. It doesn't matter if we go on collecting more and more luxury and ignoring the needs of those that are trampled along our way and we turn a blind eye, we're still guilty. And if we stand by and we look around us outside of our immediate circle and we watch a culture chew up and spit out the unwanted, the unpopular, and the unworthy because we have enough to worry about making sure we're doing stuff the right way and we look a certain way, we're okay. No amount of worship in this space amounts to anything in God's eyes. He'll look at it the same way He looked at Israel and says, take, take it away from me. I can't look at it anymore. What once brought me joy is now sickening to me. I can't take it anymore. And so I'll end, I'll end here in just a second. What is the main point of the book of Amos? It's that God cares deeply about justice in our societies. Matters of social justice are important to our God. So very deeply ingrained in his character are those issues that when he sees people oppressed, abused, mistreated, underrepresented, it breaks his heart. It offends who He is. God loves all people. People of every background. People of every income level. Of every race, gender, nation, doctrine, and history. God loves people. And He wants us to show love to people. To be an example to them of His love. God has a special place in His heart for those people. Jesus blessed on the Sermon on the Mount. God has a special place in His heart for the poor in spirit. God has a special place in His heart for those who have reason to be in mourning. God has a special place in His heart for those who are made meek. He has a special place in His heart for the hungry and the thirsty, the unwanted, the unwashed, and the unloved. God loves those people that the world has deemed to be unlovable. And when God's people, when we look away, we ignore the cries of the unloved, it breaks His heart. It grieves his heart, and it stirs up in him an anger and a heartbreak that won't be ignored. And all of the worship and the religion in the world won't make it go away. That message is so applicable to us today of who God is and what's important to Him. It's just as applicable to us today because God has not changed in that time. His character is true and is unfailing and is unchanging and we should strive to embody that character. To live out a love for people that seeks justice, that seeks peace, that promotes people who maybe don't have it within themselves to promote themselves. And I'm going to end with the words of Paul before offering a prayer. Paul said these words in 1 Corinthians 13, words to teach us about the kind of love God has for people and the importance of loving others. Words to teach us how to love like God. He says these words in chapter 13, if I could speak with all the languages of the earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I would just be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy... And if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had such a faith that I could move a mountain, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor, I sacrificed my body, I might be able to boast about that. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Let's pray. God, we give thanks for your word. The ways in which it can instruct us, but God, for the ways in which it reveals who you are to us. God, I am, we are just in awe of seeing your heart laid bare on the pages of this book of Holy Scripture. That there are these, these passages, these sacred writings that show us what is important to you, that, that show us who you are by showing us how you've presented yourself and your values to people of faith throughout centuries. God, as we reflect on the words of Amos, help us to embody the love that you have for others. Help us to take seriously the words of Paul and to not cheapen them by thinking that love is a little more important than a few other things, that if we don't have love, we've lost something great. But to truly believe what Paul says in Scripture, if we don't love We're nothing. Nothing we do can make up for a lacking in love. God, help the love that we have for others to then inform the things that we do. God, help us to be faithful and to be obedient, but to do that out of a sense of love. Not out of a sense of obligation and then hoping that will make up for a shortcoming and a lacking in love, Father, because we know from Scripture that is not the case. If we do not love, we have nothing. God, this this world thrives on chewing up and spitting out people who can't fend for themselves. In a fallen world, God, that is commonplace. And while, while we confess we are limited, And we are not perfect and we can't solve every problem. Help us to not turn blind eyes. Help us to have the strength and the courage to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. To protect those who can't protect themselves. To provide for those who can't provide for themselves. To love those the world has deemed unlovable and unwanted. And help us to do that because we have learned to love in the ways that you have taught us to love, and the way that You have loved us, Father, because we know no matter how good we are, we are all in desperate need of a Savior. And You have provided that. When we could do nothing on our own to right the wrongs that we have done, You have provided that salvation through Jesus Christ, and we are eternally grateful for that. And we give You all thanks and all praise. And it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.